Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander, and this is Majority 54, the podcast that helps the 54% who did not vote for Donald Trump talk to those who did about the most divisive issues in our country. Last week, our guest co-host was Jason Sudeikis, and I told Jason a couple days ago that we had Mike Schur coming on this week, and Jason got really excited, and he told me this story. He said that when he first started at Saturday Night Live, he would go into read-through, and he would barely ever get anything on the air as a writer, but he really admired Mike, and Mike sat right behind him, and his goal in read-through became just getting Mike to laugh. So he felt like if he could hear Mike laughing behind him, then he at least had had a successful week on the show. Mike is one of the big brains behind some of the best comedy of the past several years. He was a producer and writer for The Office. He also played Moe Schrute. He co-created Parks and Recreation and Brooklyn Nine-Nine, was a producer on the series Master of None, and created The Good Place. He also co-hosts his own podcast with Joe Poznanski. It's called The Podcast, and it's a blast. Mike, thanks for being here with us. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I, I appreciate it. I've gone on, on your podcast. Now you've been on mine. And I will just pretend that to make this even, I will just invite myself to be on the podcast again because it was fun. Please, anytime. Th- this podcast is a lot more professional than the one that I do with Joe. So it, the, the, you're clearly coming out ahead. Uh, or we're clearly coming out ahead by having you on ours, is what I meant to say. Well, I'm not sure professional is the goal in podcasting, but I will take it. I will take it. Uh, so we usually start with the news of the week. Ravi, fire away. Of course, the big news of the week is the Democratic National Convention. Uh, and instead of recapping everything that's pa- happened over the past few days, we're going to focus on a few key moments that highlight ways in which you as listeners can talk to relatives and friends who have different political beliefs. And the the highlight of at least night one, especially, was Michelle Obama's speech. Let's listen to just one particular part of that speech that I think uh, echoes some of the conversations we've been having over the past few weeks on this podcast. Because whenever we look to this White House for some leadership or consolation or any semblance of steadiness, what we get instead is chaos, division, and a total and utter lack of empathy. Yeah, so, I mean, there's so much more in this speech that's incredible, but I wanted to focus on this one in particular because... We've been talking, Jason, past few weeks just about the example of the president. And I was wondering, you know, how a speech like this even lands with a sociopath like President Trump. Uh, And I'd like to imagine him just sitting there listening to this, just being like, what is she talking about? What is this empathy thing? So you guys are both parents. uh, And Mike, you wrote a whole show about ethics and morality. It almost feels like the first former first lady is like our national cheaty here. 
Um, what do you think about <laughs> uh, this focus on the values that we teach our children and, and how out of sync this president is? Is this, is this a good use of time at, a, at the DNC? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things about her speech that struck me. The first one is that the Trump era has just been exhausting. You know, the hate and the vile and the vitriol and the rage, it's, it's it led to this kind of daily exhaustion. And so an appeal to replace that rage with kindness is a really smart appeal. Like it's emotionally smart of her to do that, to say like, it doesn't have to be like this. We don't have to feel every day like we're at war. I think she did a really good job of sort of making the case for empathy. You know, the book that we relied on the most, the philosophical text we relied on the most when we were writing The Good Place is called What We Owe to Each Other. And she was basically making a case that, that that's a better way to live, to think about what you owe to other people than how I can win the race. You know, and that's that's been what the last five years has been. And then there's a second part of it that I think is lovely, which is we're all just trying to figure out how to make our kids' lives better. Like that's the number one goal for every parent, consciously and unconsciously, especially right now as kids are showing up for day one of classes at high schools and colleges and then immediately getting sent home because there are 8,000 cases of COVID-19 overnight. So, you know, wanting your kids to be safe is probably the most universally understood human feeling. And so that's, that's a, those are two really good things to talk about. And she talks about them better than almost anybody else. Yeah, man, I, I totally agree. She is and has been since we first were introduced to her many years ago. She is America's cool mom. And it, the frame of using the family and the parent sort of frame to talk about politics has been something that really the Obamas brought so expertly and helpfully into our national conversation, and as well as talking about and using empathy. I mean, if you go back to the 04 convention speech where most of the world discovered Obama, you know, there's the lines where he talks about, it doesn't matter whether I am part of the Arab American family that is targeted in another state. It doesn't matter. You know, these people are my brothers and my sisters and using that family frame. And what this part of the speech reminded me of was in 2015, when Trump first started running, I remember my mom saying to me about my son, her grandson, what do I do if Donald Trump is president and true, my son, you know, her grandson is over at her house. She says, what if, what if true's at my house and the president comes on TV I think I would have to mute the TV so that he doesn't learn bad words, right? And so with our friends and family and everybody we're trying to persuade in our lives, going to that place of saying, aren't we both trying to raise our kids to do a certain thing? Is this a person we want in our children's lives, this president? I think it's brilliant yeah. and true. Only, there was only one bad part of her speech, which was the part where she reminded us that she hates politics because I was like, no, don't hate yeah. politics. <laughs> well... We need you. Let me tell a quick, I'll tell you a quick story because I, because some people have been like, she doesn't hate politics. So the first, the only time I've met Michelle Obama, we were like at a party thing and, you know, you sort of insert yourself into a group of like three people and then you stand there and wait for like when, when it's going to be your turn. Mm -hmm. And so that happens and I, I get to talk to her for a second and I can sort of see in her eyes that she's like, I... I'm so, I think I know who this guy, I'm not sure. And then, and then it clicks and she goes, I know who you, and she was very nice. She said, I know who you are. Everybody here loves you. She goes, you should run again. And then I was like, well, and she goes, and this, I swear, I hope I'm not talking out of school. She goes, shit, I hate it too. She goes, people say to me all the time, you should run. And I hate it. She goes, I'm really sorry. <laughs> like, so she has no interest in this stuff. And 
We shot um, a scene with her on Parks and Recreation. We did in the in the a season where Leslie Nope was trying to decide whether to take a job with the National Park Service, and we flew to Miami. Um, she was in Miami, and we flew to Miami and shot Miami for San Francisco, which is a thing that's never been done before <laughs> in the history of television. And she came in. We had, and they were like, "You have fifteen minutes with her because she's the first lady and she's busy." So. We um, we got everything ready like two hours beforehand and everything was ready. All she had to do was walk in and do it. And she came in and she just started talking to Amy Poehler. And she was like, my daughters love the show. They're huge fans. And she was incredibly congenial and lovely and great. And then um, and we but we were like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God, like we're, our time is running out. We only have 15 minutes. And she was just chatting and we were down to like five minutes left with her. And um, we were like, so do you want to we'll get you out of here. And she was like, oh, sure. Great. And so she did the scene and like nailed every line, knew exactly where to stand, knew how to do every single thing, got it exactly right the first time. And we were like, that was great. You're, we can totally use that. And she was like, well, let's do it again. That was fun. And we did it like three or four times. And like, she was just having fun. And, and like Amy started improvising with her and she was like right there with her and like rolled with it. And it was, God, she's just the best, man. She's just so great. Yeah. It's easy to mistake really, really talented for liking performing. You know what I mean? Like, like <laughs> yeah. she's she's really good at politics, which is not the same as liking politics. She's good at politics. Yeah. She's good at performing. She's just really talented. She's like our Daniel yeah. Day Lewis or something of politics. Like, it's just hard to <laughs> hard to get yeah. her out. But when she's there, she's, she's a plus. But you, she's gonna go be a, like a cobbler. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't be shocked. Like get it, get away. What was Obama's <laughs> President Obama's dream with Rahm Emanuel to to run a t shirt shop that only sells white t shirts, so they don't have to make any more choices. Uh, <laughs> I'm jealous. But uh, just to bring it home for listeners, you know, I think this I agree with you that this frame of how do you speak to your children is is a key frame for this election and just for our country generally, not just even about winning the election. I can't imagine that even Trump's most ardent supporters would want to point to him as a moral example. Like, you know, this is somebody who's explicitly uh, and routinely lies and bullies and cheats his way through life. And it makes me think about, you know, I just saw my dad recently for the first time during this quarantine and, and my dad's a Trump supporter. And I said, to, I just had a really frustrating exchange with him. And I just finally just said to him, look, would you want me to act like him? And that actually shut him up. And then I said, you know, would you want Natalie, my sister, to bring home a man like him? Uh, and he couldn't say yes. Even he, he, he will say ridiculous things, but he couldn't even say yes to that question. I mean, I, I think I tweeted this on the night of the 2016 election, but I basically said, like, for eight years, I've been able to point to the president and say to my kids, like, be like that guy. Just be like that guy. Like, just be smart and thoughtful and considerate and listen to people and have empathy and and care about people besides yourself. And now I I, I wrote something like, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to say the opposite. I'm going to have to say, don't be like that guy. And at some fundamental level, you just want the first you want the first version <laughs> i think if you're a parent and you're talking to another parent about this it's just man this guy makes it harder to raise my kids yeah like it is hard enough to raise kids in the technology you know world that we live in and everything this guy's making it harder i just want a president that makes it a little easier yeah it's a better argument than your marginal tax rate may <laughs> go up 2.1 percent or whatever like you know like that's because that's ultimately the 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 supporters of the modern day Republican Party, the things they point to are are inhuman. And that's not to mean they're not important or that they don't affect people. It's just that they're not human things. They're about marginal tax rates and uh, originalist judges and stuff. The counter argument, I think, is the emotional appeal is stronger. It's like 
he's he's making he's coarsening the world. He's making uh, my kids confused and angry. He's leading to kids being bullied in school like that. That's a that's a more human argument. And I think it's a winning one. At least I hope it is. Well, uh, Mike, we we did want to pass up the opportunity to get a little bit of your expert opinion just on the production value of this convention. You know, some people have pointed out that a lot of this was pre-recorded. I'm not sure what the alternative was, but uh, you know, you recently organized or, and were a big part of the Parks and Rec reunion. What's just your review of the DNC uh, production so far based on your experience? I'm very impressed by it, I have to say. The Parks and Recreation reunion, which you know, we shot every cast member individually in his or her own house, and you know, it required us to drop off. It was pretty early in the lockdown. You know, it was back in, in, in March and April you know, you have to drop off this equipment and then you have to, everything has to be wiped down. And then you have to like get on a zoom and walk them through the setup of the equipment. And then I was reading the other parts in the scene with the actor. You know, I was like on a zoom on their computer while they were like angled off camera and looking at the phone that was recording them. And, and they were listening to me and they're, and then responding to me as it was just, it was incredibly time consuming and very fussy. The equipment is very fussy and I think that the roll call that they did at the convention was really innovative and cool and much more was more interesting to watch by far than the average roll call at a convention because it really gave you a sense of how big the country is and how many different kinds of people there are in the country racially and ethnically and and gender wise and everything else. Like, I think that they they've done a really, really good job. And I think that they are using the, the sort of weird obstacle course that is modern day television production to make a pretty good case that the party is much bigger and more inclusive and more kind of sprawling than it sometimes can appear at a convention. Because when you look at a convention, first of all, normally there's just like commentators just talking over everything. And you're sort of getting these little glimpses of like from the great state of New Mexico, blah, blah, blah. But like everybody looks kind of the same. Everybody's in a suit or a nice dress. And it's one group of people looks kind of the same as another group of people. But by being in the actual environments in those states and seeing like what here's Las Vegas and here's New Mexico and here's here's Delaware and here's Wyoming and whatever you get. You did. It really was sort of moving. I found it very moving. I'm sure there's been a lot of stress and a lot of tears and a lot of like anxiety about uh, putting this enormous thing, this not just enormous in terms of its scope, but this unbelievably important thing. This is a one of the two political parties that matters in America making its case to the American public. And if they screw it up, it has it could have really, really disastrous, very long term effects. Like if they didn't do a good job, like Roe v. Wade could get overturned in two years, you know, like the stakes couldn't be higher. And so I've been very, very impressed by that team. I think they've done a really good job. Yeah, and we have the uh, the person who put it on uh, will be our co-host next week, Adisu Demesi. So we'll pass that message along. And he's he's hustling right now. Please do. Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, that's not the only criticism of this convention. The GOP is also arguing that too much of the convention so far has been about Trump and not Biden. Um, Jason, what do we think of that criticism? I think that's hilarious because everything about the last few years has been about Trump by design. There's hardly any uh, anything else on TV, uh, cable, certainly cable news, anything that's not about Trump. And that's Trump made that happen. Everything's about Trump. That's how he wants it. So why wouldn't this be? And, you know, the other thing is, I actually think if you look at, you know, Dr. Biden's comments last night and you look at, at the way that, you know, the former first lady uh, was talking about what President Biden will be like, you're starting to see them round that corner now. I mean, and that's a pretty natural thing, right? Like if you think about 
what the average 30-second ad looks like in the closing of a campaign is the old sweet and sour, sour and sweet, right? They start with the black and white images where they tell you about the opposition, and then everything goes back to color and the music changes, and they say, well, let me tell you about the person who's going who's gonna to replace them. And, and I think that's sort of the path that we're following here. Yeah. And also to your point, like Trump has bent his party to his will completely and utterly. I mean, like Lindsey Graham, who's one of the most powerful senators in the country, is constantly tweeting about how great a golfer Donald Trump is. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's a, it's a, you can't, you can't have it both ways. Like you, you guys made it about Trump. And so like, that's just the deal. But even in, in Michelle Obama's speech, the first chunk was about, uh, you know, her problems with the way that Trump has run the country and what he's done to America. And then the second half was about Joe Biden and about how he's going to be better. Like I, it's a, it's not just that it's a disingenuous argument, which it obviously is. It's also not actually factually true. That should be the official motto of the Republican Party in the year 2020. It's disingenuous and, and fake, <laughs> disingenuous and wrong. I mean, the question is whether it's effective. And to that, I have no idea. Yeah. Well, there's, you know, there's an old adage, I think, you know, Axelrod used to say this, which is you have to define yourself before your opponent defines you. Um, and you're going to see even more of the um, details of Biden's background being filled in. And um, I just want to end this segment with a very quick uh, clip from one, I think, particularly impressive uh, example of that. There was this video that was just, I think people are calling it the Amtrak video, which is just all about Joe Biden's routine on Amtrak and his relationship with the workers in Amtrak. And we're just going to play a very short clip from that video that I think is illustrative of the kind of background that this convention is trying to show for Biden. He would treat the conductor the same as he would the president of the United States. That is what dad taught us, that everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. After Joe became vice president, he cut down on his commute, but he kept in touch. When Greg Weaver had a heart attack, he got a phone call. I was in a barbershop in New York City, and the phone rings. And sure enough, it was Vice President Biden asking me how I'm doing. He wanted to know the whole story. It's kind of funny that you're talking to the Vice President of the United States, but if I would have told that people in the barbershop, I don't think they would have believed me. I'm not saying it like it was me and I was anything special. Everybody was special to him. We have heroes all over this country, and a lot of the essential workers out there that we don't even see that are behind the scenes, they're keeping this country going. He understands that. The average guy is important to him. So Jason, why don't you bring us home in this segment? You know, you know Biden, you've campaigned um, with him, I believe. What it, What are they, what is this sort of essential attribute of Joe Biden that they're they're pushing in this convention that that you want voters to get. He's just a decent dude. I mean, that's really what it is. Like you could have bumper stickers, man. Joe is just a decent dude. I'll tell a quick story. I remember uh, one of the first times I ever campaigned with Vice President Biden. We were in uh, this diner in St. Louis. We campaigned together a few times and got to know each other decently well. But this was one of the first times. So I'm like spacey and out of my mind and just kind of. A, can't believe that this is happening right so we go in and we're shaking every hand and everybody's freaking out and they're taking pictures with him and everything and uh i we order our food to go and then as we're leaving like i'm so excited about everything i completely forget to grab my food he pays leaves like a you know a tip that's like three times the amount in cash 
and we get in like the vice presidential limo and it's just me and him in the back and he opens up his little you know to-go box and he's about to start to eat and he looks over at me he's like where's yours man and i was like oh and we were already on the road and we were running late i was like i forgot to get it and he (laughs) didn't he didn't even like skip a beat he just he had his his sandwich in his hands and he just without a second thought like just hands me half his sandwich and then reaches in and gets like his drink and pours you know cuts it in half and then hand, like doesn't say doesn't think a word about it which is not like oh he deserves a medal it's just like he's just a decent dude and and at the end of the day like if can you even imagine that situation with Trump like <laughs> It's just, he'd just be like, that was, I don't even think he would respond. I think he would just keep eating. <laughs> so he, w- he wouldn't have asked you where your food right, exactly. was. He wouldn't have noticed. <laughs> he wouldn't even have noticed. <laughs> That's a good point. No. That's a good point. Mike, we have another segment we call Quarantine Corner. It's where we share something from our week, whether it's a book we read, a movie or show we watched, a personal win, et cetera. And this week's Quarantine Corner is brought to you by our friends at Noom. I'll go first on this one. You know, one of the things that, and using Noom over the past few weeks that I've become more conscious of is just how many steps I take. And I live in New York where there's just not as much green space and opportunity to get out uh, in a sort of safe way. Uh, uh, But lately the weather's been pretty good. And so I've been trying to get out more and more, especially this week with the convention. You know, Arena, um, my organization has been super involved in the convention and so I've had to push myself to go outside. And so I've been moving most of my meetings that I can to phone calls and just walking around the block, uh, which has been really awesome. But the other day, this uh, there's this old Italian woman who's kind of a staple of our neighborhood, this woman, Mary, who lives in, in my neighborhood. One of the s- sort of last Little Italy holdovers, she stopped me when I wasn't on a call and she said, hey do you mind keeping it down when you're walking around the block? Because <laughs> I guess I have like, <laughs> I have such a loud Staten Island voice. I guess I've been an annoyance to everybody as I just keep circling the same block on my phone calls. Uh, and so big win getting my steps in, but I think a uh, big loss in, in, in annoying the shit out of my neighbors. I'm going to try to vary my route uh, as I go around, <laughs> but I'll pass it over to Jason. So I have been rereading The Hunt for Red October, and this is all part of my like read fiction at night thing. That's like my little mental health thing I've been doing, reading a lot of fiction at night because it has nothing it has to also be something that has nothing to do with like my current work like I don't read fiction about politics I don't read fiction about veterans work or anything but I can you know I I can read about the cold war and it makes me feel nostalgic for a world that was scary and ordered as opposed to a world that is scary and unpredictable (laughs) and so uh Mike you're uh it's a great book um I'm reading a, a the first of a trilogy uh, called the Three Body Problem, which uh, is a pretty famous trilogy. It's it's, uh, it's Chinese. It was written by a, a Chinese author, and it's it's really great. It's also scary because it's about a couple of scientists uh, on opposite sides of the globe. One of them in America, and one of them in China, who at different moments um, made contact with with alien life that's like five five hundred years away. So this woman, who's also a scientist, sort of came to the conclusion that human life on Earth is is sort of irredeemable. And so she makes contact. Um, she's at this kind of experimental base in the 60s and she's alone and she uh, gets an, basically a message from like alien life. And and she she sends them a message and gets a message back that says, don't respond, don't respond, don't respond. Like the alien race that you've contacted is like warlike and and um, and they will like destroy you and conquer you. 
And if you send another message, they'll be able to triangulate your location and they'll come and they'll invade Earth. And she goes, come get us, man. We're, we're done. <laughs> and, and, and so like and so now it's like uh, she's like waiting for them. And I, I really like it. It's really I wish I wish I could read it in the original Mandarin um, because the trans, I'm, I'm not sure if it's a good translation or a bad translation, but it's it's I'm hoping um, like with everything I read that that is sort of dystopian, that it has a, a positive or, or hopeful message at the end. Because if it if the aliens just show up and conquer everybody and everybody dies, it'll be kind of sad. <laughs> but uh, it's really good, though. I, I recommend it. And also, uh, I turned it over for the first time. I read the like blurbs on the back yesterday, and the first one is from Barack Obama, who was uh, really yeah, who was like, "This is wildly imaginative." So I was like, "Hey, I agree, Mr. President." All right. So obviously, Ravi and I are friends. We you know have great chemistry on this podcast. But I had no idea why that is. And then both Ravi and I went on the Helix website and we took the quiz to see what kind of mattress we should get. And, you know, because Helix, you take the short quiz and then Helix customizes it for you. And Ravi, tell them what we found out we also weirdly have in common. Well, we both sleep on our sides. Uh, we both like mattresses that are medium feel, not super soft, not super firm. And so, Helix sent us the same mattress, actually, uh, which is the Midnight Mattress. Uh, how are yeah, you liking your Midnight Mattress, Jason? I am loving my Midnight Mattress. Perhaps there's a certain personality type that sleeps on their side and likes their mattress just a medium feel. I don't know. Now it's it's a science thing for me now. It may replace astrology. Helix is awesome, but you don't need to take our word for it. Helix was awarded the number one best overall mattress pick of 2020 by GQ and Wired Magazine. They have a 10-year warranty, and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but of course you will. It's not just that we invite you to. like We challenge you. Go take the quiz and get yourself a customized mattress. Helix is offering up to $200, up to 200 bones off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash majority54. So it's helixsleep.com slash majority54. So our listeners might not know this, but I've known Jason for many years now. We recently became even more close about a year ago because we started this fitness community together where we brought together a bunch of friends and we were using a spreadsheet to track everything from our workouts to what we're eating and how many steps we're taking. What has been really awesome is that recently we discovered this app called Noom, which basically takes what we were doing in this rudimentary small fashion using spreadsheets and just with our friends and actually has created a national and global community that does way more than what we were doing and in a way more sophisticated way. It's basically your one-stop shop for tracking your fitness, tracking your food, but also gives you a guided course that teaches you about how to not only do the right thing, but how to make it stick. So it, it dives really deep into the psychology. And so I can't recommend it enough. And you know, my goals have been pretty simple on this one. You know, I, like a lot of people, had struggled to keep the same habits and routines during COVID as it relates to fitness and nutrition. And so I uh, set a goal to lose a few pounds, and I'm already halfway there uh, just over the past few weeks using Noom. Yeah, look, it really works. I mean, we're all strapped for time, and Noom just asks you to commit 10 minutes a day for yourself. You're human. If you go off track, there's no shaming from Noom. It's just tips to help you get back on track tomorrow. What you do is you chat with your goal specialist and the Noom community to get and give help to people going through the exact same things as you. 
You can sign up for your trial today at Noom, which is N-O-O-M dot com slash majority. What do you have to lose? Visit Noom.com slash majority to start your trial today. That's N-O-O-M dot com slash majority. Uh, well, Mike, we also have a segment we call This Week in Misinformation, where we usually dissect a GOP talking point, meme, video, et cetera. And last week, we talked about the growing postal service scandal. Uh, and so just as background, I, th- I think most people are familiar with this at this point, but basically the Trump administration has installed a, a political hack to dismantle the postal service. And the president has explicitly stated his goal, which is to uh, mess with the postal service as a way to help his reelection effort. And since last week, there's been a lot of news on this front, um, especially around uh, the head of the Postal Service now backtracking a little bit, states suing the Postal Service. What we wanted to do was talk about what you can do about this. And I know, Jason, you were texting me yesterday saying just, I'm getting tons of messages from people saying, what can I do? So what's your advice, Jason? We as regular citizens have to focus on what we can control. And this is sort of for all of the folks who tweet at me about, do something about this. We have to do something about this. We, we have to keep in mind that Democrats currently control one half of one third of the federal government. The average citizen has to focus on what they can control, and that's keep plugging away at winning this election. And that, that may ultimately mean that if, yes, the male you know, throwing off the mail plan is successful, that we are going to have to win by more than plus one. That may be what that means. That may be the reality we're living in. That's not giving up. That's saying we can change that reality after we control more things. But first, we have to make sure that if we're young and healthy, we're going to the polls ourselves and voting, that if we're voting by mail, that we get our our ballots in as soon as we possibly can. A couple weeks ago on the show, I mentioned... um, you know, votefromhome2020.org. There's things that Let America Vote is doing. There are lots of ways you can specifically get involved in the cause of fighting to, and I can't believe we even have to talk about this, but save the post office. But the most important thing is don't do what they're baiting you to do, which is to be so upset by this that you spend all your time kvetching about what's happening to the post office instead of spending that time, you know, text banking or phone banking to get people to vote. And the last part of this is not falling for this aspect of voter suppression that is not talked about much, which I refer to as the it seems really difficult uh, brand of voter suppression, which is where the Republicans go out and they make people feel like it's just going to be really hard. Voting is just going to be really difficult. And that keeps a lot of low propensity voters who tend to be Democrats from voting. An example of this, other than the post office, is in the next several weeks, you will see Republican secretaries of state going around their states and doing quote-unquote educational tours about photo ID, where they go out and they have plausible deniability because they're standing in front of big signs that have like flow charts about what you need in order to vote. And and they say, I'm just out here educating the voters about what they need to do and show up at the polls. What they're doing is they're getting pictures of them in front of very complicated flow charts to make it seem as though voting is going to be very difficult so that low propensity voters are more likely to throw up their hands and say, well, you know, it just seems like probably I won't be able to when you will be able to. And so we have to be careful not to play into that by exclusively talking about the post office all the time. That's an issue. We got to fight against it. You know, it looks like Nancy Pelosi may bring the Congress back to try and get something done. It looks like this fooled the joy, 
you know, he seems to be bending to some pressure. That's great. That's not our job. Those of us listening to this, those of us on this pod, our job is to go out and get as many people we know to vote for Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris and all the Democrats down the ballot as possible. Yeah, like, as always, they're counting on apathy and exhaustion and fear. Apathy comes about from just that sense of like, oh, God, I have I need this and I have to do that. And this is going to be hard. And do, what do I have to do? And exhaustion is the repetition every single day of like, this is an issue. This is an issue. This is an issue. And then the fear comes from, you know, these very real uh, and unpleasant tactics they use to make it seem like, well, if you have an outstanding warrant um, for a traffic violation and you show up to vote, you're going to be arrested. They use every possible tactic they can muster to stop you from doing the thing that you are constitutionally guaranteed to be able to do. So you have to fight that. You have to fight through that. Practically speaking, by the way, calling your reps on this particular issue, um, it's always a good idea. But here it's an even better idea because the post office is most beneficial to people in rural areas. There are Republican senators and congresspeople who desperately uh, fear the, a weakened post office because it means that the people in their states who live way out of, far away from cities can't get basic things, medicine and social security checks and everything else. And it matters, like that matters to them. And you're seeing that with some of the, what you might call the blue dog Democrats or the, the most moderate Democrats. The, a lot of those people have been incredibly vocal about what's going on with the post office because if you're a senator in you know Wyoming or Colorado or Montana or any place like that, you care very deeply that the post office functions properly. DeJoy has said recently, okay, I'm not going to, uh, I'm going to delay all of the other stuff I'm going to do until after the election, uh, because, uh, you know, I don't want any hint of impropriety or whatever. Uh, that's a tell, uh, I think. That's a tell that he's already done a lot of stuff to screw up the whole system. Not only when, when the Congress comes back in session, do they need to secure that promise, they need to have him reverse a lot of the stuff he's already done. He, we need, they need to put post office boxes back where they were. They need to put mail sorting boxes back where they were. And in order to get that to happen, People need to call their senators. That matters. When phones ring, people pay attention because on the average day, the phone doesn't ring. So if a, if a senator or a congressperson gets gets 500 phone calls in a single day and they're all saying, you got to do something about this, they will pay attention. They will take action. There are things we can do to fight back against this and we should do all of them. One thing that's happening at the convention, I think is really smart in contrast to 2016, where it, the convention was so much about the personality flaws of the president full stop. This convention is about how the personality flaws of this president actually impact your life. So if you are a veteran where there are hundreds of thousands of them who receive their medicine through the mail, and this president's messing with the post office for his political gain, that is affecting your life. His inability to get COVID under control is affecting your life. You know, his his rampant narcissism and his inability to get the handle on the basic functions of government are affecting you. And I, you're seeing that in the messaging in this convention. I think it's really smart. We have a segment we call unsolicited campaign advice, where we provide advice to political campaigns. It could be for any office, any level. Uh, Mike, do you have anything for us this week? A very um, clear political memory, I think, for a lot of people is Al Gore's concession speech in 2000. And a very frequently heard thing in the aftermath of that speech was, well, where has this guy been? This like really kind of eloquent and sort of uh, lovely speech uh, that was heartfelt 
you know, the thing about Gore was always he's too stiff, he's too stiff or whatever. I've thought about that a lot, especially recently, because my whole life there's been this method of speaking that politicians were, quote, supposed to, end quote, have, which is sort of stentorian and serious. There was a certain cadence of uh, that this very sort of very carefully sort of cautiously like um, proper sort of mode of discourse. And then those people would get off the stump and suddenly they would be gregarious and relatable and human. And you would be like, well, talk like this. Like if talk like this when you're speaking to the people who might vote for you and you'll do better. And there's this whole new generation of politicians now and they don't talk like that. And it's really wonderful. Katie Porter is a good example of how I think people should talk when they're relating to their constituents. She's a human being and she's really smart and she's really funny and she seems like your friend. She seems like your. she seems like the coolest parent at your kid's school who the one that you when you drop off your kids, you're always happy to see that parent because that parent is like smart and interesting and has like a good take on things. My unsolicited campaign advice for pretty much everyone, even the old guard, is just talk like a person, just talk like a normal person and don't assume that kind of that kind of like officious sort of stentorian tone because I don't think it works anymore. I really don't. I think people are, are done with it. And the only, there's literally one good thing that I can say about Donald Trump. And the, the and which is this, he broke that seal. He broke the seal around American politics, which were like, you had to present yourself a certain way in order to seem viable as a candidate. Because I think that that way of presentation stopped a lot of people from running for office because it was like, well, I'm not like that. I'm not like Al Gore or John Kerry or or Liddy Dole. I don't have that in me because that's just not the way I think and act and talk. And and Trump blew that into smithereens like he blows everything into smithereens. So, Mike, every week we give out a few awards to members of the GOP who go above and beyond. We're going to focus on our Kellyanne Conway Alternative Facts Award. I want to give it to the GOP voters in Georgia's 14th congressional district, because they voted in uh, in their primary, Marjorie Taylor Greene, somebody we mentioned a couple weeks ago when, when we went through the QAnon conspiracy theories, and she defeated a neurosurgeon named John Cowan, who had pitched himself as all of the conservative, none of the embarrassment. And if you're asking yourself, well, what does that mean? Um, let me give you a little bit of background, and we could talk about it really quickly, since we've had a lot of interest in QAnon recently. As a refresher, QAnon, uh, and there's so much more to this, but uh, QAnon is a conspiracy theory where uh, the believers in this believe that there's a person named Q who is taking on elite members of a secretive satanic sex trafficking ring. And Green had previously said that, quote, Q is a patriot. We know that for sure. There's a once in a lifetime opportunity to take this global cabal of Satan worshiping pedophiles out. And I think we have the president to do it. So the president, once again, as a reminder, is the hero of the story. Uh, and she's also made a number of crazy statements on other issues, like um, when two Muslim women were elected to Congress, she called it an Islamic invasion of our government. And even though some Republicans like Kevin McCarthy had called her out earlier in the primary, uh, Republicans are largely falling in line now. And, and Trump wasted no time in congratulating her on Twitter Guys, what does this mean that we're going to have members? She's going to probably win the general election. What does it mean to the modern GOP that we're now electing members of Congress who seem like even a new standard deviation of lunatic? 
I don't know. I, I, I think, I mean, it's the honest answer. Like, I don't know what to do about, I, I feel like, okay, here's what I think. I think this is a function of having a, a system of elections where it rewards people running to the farthest reaches of their party, right? And I can remember when I was in the state legislature and we had a big Republican majority and I was down there in the minority and they would do these bills over and over again that were like, it was before the tide had turned on gay rights. So they would they would do a bill, like an amendment to try and catch us on a vote on gay rights, or they do another one on guns and another one on abortion. And I remember um, my buddy Stephen Weber and I used to have this thing where we would like go to the Republicans and say, hey, if you want, we will sign something every day when we show up to work that says we think uh, gay people should be able to get married and abortion should be legal and that we should have like some, you know, gun control. And then if we do that, can we just like do jobs bills? And the reason <laughs> the reason that we couldn't do that, that they would never allow that is because they were just all trying to win Republican primaries. And so as a result, I used to say that they were carving into the bone. Like they had taken all the meat off of, you know, this animal they were they were eating. And now they were just like, just diving into the bone because it's all that was left. And so I feel like we are, unfortunately get crazy people like this because you just eventually have, you have to keep topping yourself, right? If you're, if you're the Republicans and you have to keep going further and further right. Um, I think you're right that, that that is a little bit of a function of the primary system, but I think there's something else going on that's a lot deeper and scarier. And conspiracy theories and paranoia are just ways of organizing a chaotic world in order to feel safer. And so that's why they're appealing at a time of chaos, right? Like at right now, with the world as chaotic as it is, if someone comes along and says, I have a theory that explains everything that's wrong with the world – there are a lot of people who out of fear and paranoia will listen and they'll pay attention and they'll even adopt that theory, no matter how crazy it seems to other people. So ultimately, the path to eliminating bananas, uh, conspiracy theories like QAnon is to make the world better, is to make uh, income inequality less virulent, uh, is to make people feel safer, is to make people feel happier, is to give them more basic structures that keep them afloat. And when you do that, the conspiracy theories will go away. They just, they will, or at least they'll weaken. They might not go away, but they'll weaken. Their grip on people will weaken because there is less of a, of a desperation to explain what horrible things are happening. We have this segment that we call Grab an Aura, where we just end with action. And I'll, I'll start us off. I've been working with a bunch of partners, Acronym, Higher Ground Labs, Crooked Media, on this documentary that's going to premiere tonight at the convention. And it's all about the attempts at voter suppression in Wisconsin and how activists and organizers on the ground in Wisconsin in the spring overcame those efforts at suppression to win an important uh, Supreme Court race. And it's called Dress Rehearsal. And it's all about how that election in Wisconsin was is a dress rehearsal for what's about to come in November. And it dovetails with some of the things we talked about earlier, which is you can be inspired to overcome these obstacles. We don't have to be scared of them. The documentary goes through people of all different walks of life, all different kind of ages and, and risk factors of COVID who had to overcome massive, massive uh, efforts to keep them from the polls. And so if you want to check it out, you can go to votesaveamerica.com slash dress rehearsal, and it's going to be airing tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. And it's also going to be on Al uh, Alamo On Demand uh, for free for anybody who wants to check it out there. And then I'll pass it to Mike. We always like to, to give our guests an opportunity to point our listeners to action. 
I have a very specific one, which is if you are young and strong and relatively healthy, uh, volunteer as a poll worker. A lot of poll workers and a lot of places are on the elderly side. The risk of contracting COVID is much greater for them than for you. Obviously, we don't want anyone to get COVID-19, but let the older poll workers, the people who usually volunteer to where the rubber meets the road of voting, uh, you know, make everything work. Let them stay home and let's take some of the burden off their shoulders and volunteer. You can if you if you just Google search, uh, how do I volunteer as a poll worker? It's not hard. You have to do a little training and then you can go and just help people vote. It, I don't think it's that hard. It's not a huge burden. It's one day or a couple days of your life. And I think it could really help if a lot of poll workers were on the younger side and the healthier side and and had less of a fear of uh, getting really badly uh, ill. Yeah, I'm just going to piggyback on Mike's and say that this is super important because it's what keeps them from closing polling places, which is part of voter suppression. And we've hit this drum before, but just to, to like really hit it, I'm going to put out to people that if, if you'll do this and then you'll like post a screenshot of your little thing saying you signed up or anything, it, it, you don't even need evidence. Just if you'll just tag me and Majority 54 or whatever and tweet that you you signed up to be a poll worker, like I'll amplify it and I'll say nice things about you publicly because because uh, <laughs> I, I want this to be contagious and, and catch on. So, all right, I'm going to do the sign off. But before I do, Mike, thanks for doing this, man. You're great at this and we, we really appreciate you joining us. My pleasure. I had a really good time. This is the only thing that matters in the world right now. So <laughs> I'm happy to talk about it. All right. Well, you can follow Mike on Twitter. He's at Ken Tremendous, naturally. Uh, Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at J. Jason Kander on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. If you haven't already subscribed, please do it right now, and don't forget to rate and review the show, because it, it helps get the word out, and it lets us know how we're doing. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and Edie Howard. Theme music provided by Kimmet Coleman. Special thanks to Diana Kander. Your presidential playlist is your definitive guide to the presidential election explained by the women who know it best. Host Emily Tish sussman speaks with elected officials, campaign organizers, and activists to understand this important race. She's asking questions such as, will we be able to vote safely in the era of COVID? How are local officials adapting to this rapidly changing environment? And perhaps most importantly, how are all of these issues going to play out in the swing states that will decide who wins the presidency? Each week, join Emily to examine what Democrats need to do to win in each state and how you can play a role no matter where you live. Listen and subscribe to your presidential playlist wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.